Good evening. <coughs> it is a uh, delight to be preaching tonight. Uh, I'll be preaching from the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Um, I'll go ahead and read the text first, and then I will pray for us. Beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, gracious, great, merciful God, we devote this time to you, O Lord, as an act of worship and praise. Lord, we ask that as we are in your word tonight, that you would illuminate your word to us. Help us by your spirit to have wisdom and discernment to understand your word truly that it may be a blessing to us, O Lord. And above all things, we ask that in your word we would be able to see clearly the work of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I'll be just preaching uh, one sermon from the book of John, so I won't take a lot of time to introduce the, the entire book of 1 John, but there is one theme that I do want to introduce before we jump into, because I think it's particularly important to the text tonight. And that theme that we see in the book of 1 John really has to do with a question. What is a Christian? What does a Christian look like? What does a Christian know? What does a Christian believe and do and think? How do they respond to the world and so on and so forth? Throughout this epistle, John is really coloring that question for us in a variety of ways. And one of the things that he does all throughout this epistle is he shows us that we have to answer that question in light of who God is primarily. You see, John shows us and reminds us often that Christians are really God's children. That we live in a unique relationship to God now uh, than we did before as children to our Heavenly Father. If you do a cursory reading of 1 John, you see all of the time that John loves to call believers children. Little children. Dear children. And he loves to refer to God as Father. And he's doing this for a very important purpose. He's reminding us of our new relationship to God. That we have been born again and brought into a new family. And that is God's family. And he's also reminding us that the character of the Christian is forevermore defined by the character 
of God. That is, that the character of believers reflects who God is and is dependent upon him. And so to answer this question, what is a Christian? We have to know something about who God is. And these two things come together in our text tonight. John is going to show us something incredibly remarkable about our God. Namely, his attribute of love. That our God is a loving God. But he also shows how this is so applicable to us as believers. That as a result, we are given the command to love. Not out of thin air, but because our God is love. And so tonight, I want to look at this text under three main points. And just a brief word on those points. They are so clearly related to one another in a causal relationship. That because the first point is true, the second one follows, and the third one comes. They are connected like dominoes falling. The first point is this. God is love. The second point, we see God's act of love. And thirdly, we see God's command of love. Let's start with the first point, simply that God is love. Starting in verses 7 and 8, we see a command given. John says, Beloved, let us love one another. But then he immediately goes on and he roots that command in something bigger than itself. He roots that command in God himself. John tells us why we must love one another. And the reason is because our God himself is love. Briefly, we ought to take a moment and simply define what love is so we can properly understand what John means when he says that God is love. If you went out to the streets or the downtown Houston or to any populated area and you began to ask people, what is love? You would get all sorts of answers, a, an enormous variety of them. And I think that's true because love is sort of a complex idea. It's hard to define. In fact, it's often misunderstood. Generally in our culture around us, people limit love to purely an emotion or toward an attitude, right? I think my wife could testify that I've been known on a number of occasions to say something like, I love cheesecake or I love Mexican food. But that's not really a good use of the word love. It doesn't describe love the way it is biblically described. Those describe a preference, a taste towards something, liking something. But rather, when we look at the biblical testimony, we see that love is much bigger than this. It's much more comprehensive. It's a much fuller concept. Simply put, the biblical testimony is that love is a kind of devotion to someone. It is a devotion that is selfless. It is a devotion that is holy and devoted toward others. And because this is true, love is always expressed in activity. It's always expressed in actions. So you could simply say that the one who is loving is somebody doing something. They're acting in some way. You could also say love is the selfless giving up of yourself for others. The key word here really is selfless. 
that love is by nature outward facing. It is not looking to our own needs, our own desires, our own values, but it is outward facing. It is looking to the needs of others. Love is also by nature sacrificial. Love requires the giving up of time, of efforts. It will demand much of you and it will require that we be selfless and without the desire for self-gain. When we speak of love in that kind of way, I think we very quickly realize just how difficult love is. Just how hard it is to be truly loving to those around us. I think we can even imagine and wonder if something such as pure and perfect and true love is even possible. A love that is perfectly selfless. A love that is perfectly devoted to others. Well, John answers that question very clearly in our text. He tells us that that love that is perfect and true cannot be found in and of ourselves. In fact, it is instead only found in the person of God. John tells us first that love comes from God, but then he goes one step further. God doesn't just have love. He tells us God is love. He tells us God is love, and this means that he is the possessor of perfect, complete love. You might even say that the only reason love exists at all in the world is because God exists. And this is a noteworthy thing when we say that God is love. It's something that holds tremendous weight behind it. When we say that God is love, we're talking about a divine attribute of God. We're talking about a quality that God possesses in and of himself. A, a quality that reflects to us who God is. A quality that reflects God's very nature. You see, God identifies with his attributes so much so that the attributes of God characterize really all that God does. And so if we say that God is love, we must also say that everything that God does in some way reflects the love of God. It somehow shows the love of God. There are several significant implications of talking in this language, saying that God is love. But there's also several errors that we can fall into so easily when we talk about God being love. Briefly, let me mention two errors that we need to avoid when we say that God is love. The first thing we are not saying when we say that God is love is we're not saying that God's only attribute is love. God has many attributes, and love is but one of those. God's loving attribute does not contradict, it does not overshadow, it does not overplay any of the other attributes. So we could never say God is part or somewhat just and more loving than that. Rather, God is fully and perfectly just, and he is fully and perfectly loving. When we look at all of the attributes of God, we see a seamless whole. We see all of who 
God is. A second error that we must avoid is what I like to say, an error for the mathematically inclined. Uh, Generally, you might want to take God and love, and if you're mathematically inclined, you would put a large equal sign right in the middle of those two things. And you would say that because God equals love, therefore love equals God. And the error is that we begin to deify love itself. We begin to make love ultimate and not God ultimate. You see, we must always remember that love is an attribute of the one true and living God. It is something that he possesses. Love is not an independent reality of God that defines him. Rather, he is ultimate in everything. And so we do not deify love. But then let me briefly mention a couple of implications, positive implications of saying God is love and and to see how those can be applied to us. The first implication is this. When we say that God is love, we're also saying that God is the source of all love. John says in verse 7, very simply, love is from God. He is the source of love. He is love's starting point. All love finds its beginning in God. One way to think of this is kind of like a river. If you find a river and begin to follow that river upstream, no matter how far you follow it, miles and miles, eventually you will find where that river is coming from. What is the source of that water flowing? And in a similar way, we must know that we can take any instance of love and we can trace it back ultimately to God himself. Now, this, I think, is tremendously important for us. I think this can be applied very clearly to us. Because sometimes, if we're honest, I think we can begin to imagine that love finds its source in us. I think this can come about when we do something that is particularly loving. Think of something that is particularly loving that is out of the ordinary for our normal week. Perhaps when we make a tough sacrifice for our spouse. When we sacrifice something we love to show love to our spouse. Or perhaps we show love to a a complete stranger by witnessing to them for several hours. I think in those moments we can easily become prideful. And we can start to imagine that that love found its origin in us. That it started in us and came to that person. I'm not saying that these are wrong things. Far from that. Those are tremendously loving things. But do we remember in that moment that that love did not come from us. Rather it came through us. Love can be taken back to God. And so in those moments when we are showing love. Do we think of God? Do we stop and remember that all love really came from him? He is the source of all love. It's not truly coming from us, but only through us. When we love others or when we see love in the world, what is our reaction to that? Is it to praise ourselves, or is it to praise God and to stop and reflect and remember that he is the source of all love? Another implication of saying that God is love 
is that God's love is eternal. <clears throat> Even before God makes anything at all, before God creates the world and has the world as the object of his love, love is already found within God himself from all eternity. Simply put, from all eternity, God has had love within the Godhead. That each person of the Trinity has existed in a mutual and perfect loving relationship. I think one theologian puts it quite well when he says this. Within the Trinity, there is the fullest, most satisfying and complete interchange of love amongst the three holy persons. So here we have this eternal picture. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father. And so on and so on. We have several examples of this even in Scripture. One is from John 17, 24. When Jesus is up in that upper room discourse and he is praying intimately to the Father. He says this in verse 24. You loved me before the foundation of the world. Do we know that love is an eternal quality? Do we know that love has always existed with our God? He has always had it. He has always had love within himself. From eternity past, God has possessed love. And in eternity future, God will have all love. Do we ever stop and simply remember that? What can we do with the simple fact that God is love? We can remember that. We can pause during the busyness of our life and remember who our God is. Is God's love something that you praise him for specifically? Do you praise God because he has a loving nature and because he is the God of perfect love? ...of perfect, pure, devoted love. Well, we see that God is indeed love... ...and we also see that God acts in love. We turn now to our second point... ...and it would do, do us well to remember that these are really connected. There's a causal relationship. Because God is love, he will surely show that love. He will act in loving ways... Because God is love, he will commit great acts of love. Well, John isn't really concerned with showing us all of the loving activity of God. I think if we began to try to list all of the things that constitute God's loving activity, we'd have a very long list. And John simply can't do that for us. Instead, John is concerned with the greatest expression of God's love. What is that act that God shows and reveals his love in a greater way than in any other actions of God. That is what John is concerned with. What is that moment when God pours out his love in a way that is greater than all other times? Well, he says this in verse 9. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest. And we have to stop and say, well, what is the this? What is the this that the love of God was made manifest? Well, John goes on. That God sent his only son into the world. 
Simply put, the greatest expression of God's love is in the sending of the Son. And notice John's emphasis on only. God is sending his only Son. He is not sending angels. He's not sending seraphim or cherubim. He's not sending anything else at all that is created. He's sending something eternally valuable to him. He's sending his own son, something that is imminently special to him. The second person of the Trinity that he has eternally loved and that has eternally loved him back. And notice John here uses the word manifest. He says that the love of God is made manifest here with us. And this word manifest is really an important word for John. It's something that he really wants us to see all throughout his epistle because he is highlighting for us the fact that God's love is more than theoretical love. God's love is real. It is a tangible love. When John says that God's love is manifest, that word means that it has appeared. It has come before us so that you can experience it. It's not a theoretical love. It's real love. Jesus Christ, John is reminding us, actually came to the earth. The Son of God really did take on flesh and walk among us. He really did do the things that the Gospels describe him doing. John even hints at this very strongly in the beginning of his epistle. He opens it up saying this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's saying all of the senses were involved. We could see Christ. We could touch him. We could hear him. The love of God had actually come. I think this shows us that God does not love us merely from a distance. I think sometimes when we imagine God showing love for us, we imagine him being shut up far away in the, behind the pearly gates. And he's there on his heavenly throne and he is loving us by sending us loving thoughts and attitudes and feelings. But God's love is much greater than that. John is telling us that God's love is active. uh, God's love does things. It came to us. It is manifest before us and we can experience it. Well, what are those great things that God's love accomplishes? What does the love of God result in? What does it do? John tells us this very clearly, that God's love brings life. God's love is regenerative. It brings from death to life. He says this, that God sent his only son into the world so that, so that we might live through him. So God's love is resurrection It brings resurrection. It brings people from death to life. That is the greatest thing that God's love accomplishes for us. And and John teases out this love and how it is working for us. And he especially highlights the redemptive focus of it. That 
God's love brings redemption from sins particularly. He highlights this in verse 10 when he says, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here John is identifying the work of Jesus Christ and he's particularly focusing in on Jesus' work on the cross. He's particularly focusing in on that act of bloody redemption that Jesus Christ underwent. Now propitiation is one of those uh, unusual words that is only used in scripture uh, a few times and it's a bit difficult to describe. It is usually used in the language of atonement, atonement for sins. At its most broad meaning, a propitiation is the means by which sins are forgiven. So it is that which brings about uh, uh, forgiveness for sins. But it's more than that. A propitiation is more special than that. It also more specifically deals with the satisfaction of God's holy wrath. When we talk about God's holy wrath being directed against sin... A propitiation is that which satisfies that wrath. It's that which pulls the wrath of God away. I think Isaiah 53 in verse 5 is talking about this use of propitiation when it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. John is reminding us, that the wrath of God that is rightfully directed at you has now been redirected to Christ. That is what it means to say Christ is a propitiation for our sins. But John is also reminding us that in order for the forgiveness of sins at all, there has to be atonement. There has to be blood. And this is true because God does not merely cast away sin. As often as we might want God to simply forget our sins, to let them go, to pass them by, this is something that God simply cannot and does not do. And this is true because God is also holy. God is also a righteous God, a pure God. And he has divine standards for sinning against him. And he will not in any way lower those standards of sin. He will not set the bar lower for us who have sinned against him. Rather, in his love, and because he is so loving, God satisfies his own divine standards of justice. He is the one who atones for our sins. Through the sacrifice of Christ, God is paying for our debt. He is taking that upon himself and satisfying his own holiness. Now, John has showed us in incredible ways how God's love through Christ is truly great. But it gets even better than that. John also shows us that this love that God shows us in Christ is completely undeserved he says this in verse 10 not that we have loved God but that he loved us you see 
This is what sets God's love apart from all other love. When we talk about love, we so easily recognize that it is easiest to love those that really we like, that are sort of lovely in who they are, that we think can pay us back for the love that we show to them. Yet the truth is, you and I are not very lovely before God. You and I are not pleasing to God in that way. In fact, Scripture tells us that in our sin, we have rebelled against God. And even more than that, in our sin, we have despised God. We have rejected Him. So God owes us nothing. He owes us no love. And in fact, we deserve no bit of love at all. But this is what makes God's love so great. Paul highlights this tremendous, undeserved love that God has for us in Romans 5, 8. There he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, God does not wait for us to deal with our own sin. He does not say to his people, you need to go and deal with your sin. You need to solve that whole sinning issue and then come back to me. And once you do that, maybe we will talk. No, God does not do that. Instead, God proactively enters into our life. He comes into our life, though we did not deserve it. He comes into our life and he deals with our sin in Christ. He atones for our sin. He is the one who first pours out his love for you and I. Isn't this the good news of the gospel? That God loves us way before we can ever come around to show any amount of love to him? This is the good news. And it is the good news that we must be encouraging those around us with. Simply put, there are so many people in our midst who really do not know what to do with their sin. They sense that they are guilty before a holy God. They know that they are bound to him. And yet they do not know what to do with their sin. They do not know what to do with their guilt. We must be those who point them to the cross. We must tell them what they must do. They must go to God and they must let God deal with their sins. We can be pointing those around us to God, to Christ We must show those around us that there really is hope. There is an answer for their sins. There is real love available for them. But what about us? How can this be applied to us? I think sometimes, even as believers, we can really doubt the love of God. I think sometimes we can wake up and we can think to ourselves... Can it really be this good? Do I really have it as good as God promises I have it? All of the blessings, all of the love, all of the forgiveness that I have in Christ, can that really be true? John is showing us that the solution to that doubt is to look to the cross yet again. 
to look to the cross with eyes of faith. Because there at the cross is the expression of God's love in its most bold form. It is a beacon for God's love, declaring that he loves you indeed. It is like a billboard laid out in the heavens, which promises you and declares to you that he really does love you through his son. God has sacrificed his only son for you. Certainly, he loves you. So we look to the cross, and we know that it is sure. And we know that it is sure for those who believe and trust in the Son. Well, that's the end of the second point, but I'd like to go on to the third point now, which is the command of love, which is God's command of love. This is where I think the text really comes and takes place in our lives and and begins to take um, shape into our lives. You might say it is the so what of the text. The so what, now that we have received the love of God, what do we do? Well, it's very simple. God tells us that we must now show that love. We must now love others. So John shows us that there is a strong connection between God's love and now our love, our duty to love. Look with me at verse 7. It says, whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. So before love comes in the life of the believer, the believer must know God. That is, have a saving knowledge of God. And before love can appear in the believer, the believer has to first be born again. He has to be a part of the family of God. If, if we are not a part of the family of God, there can be no love in our life. In other words, love is the evidence of God's love in your life. Your love for others is the evidence of God's love for you. It is that proof that evidence that we are truly in Christ. And it gives us assurance. It gives us assurance that we truly are children of God when we show the love of God. But look with me also at verse 8. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God. And here you really have the opposite statement. John is telling us here that love is not at all Uh, natural to sinners. That love is a quality that is completely and utterly foreign to the sin nature that we are all born in. And that we will not be able to love others unless we first have received the love of God. It will not happen. It is an impossibility, John tells us. And I think this makes sense as we all know that there are some things that you simply need to be taught how to do. I don't know about you, but I've never witnessed a child be born and then immediately solve uh, advanced calculus problems, right? That is something that takes years of practice. It is something that requires a teacher. Well, in a similar way, we won't be able to love and to show love for others until we know and have been taught what true love is. And even more than that, have experienced the love of God. Brothers and sisters, 
Have you experienced the love of God? Do you know what it is like to be born again? Do you know what it is like to be a part of the family of God and to have experienced his love in a real way? If so, the evidence will be your love. The evidence of God's love will be your love for others. And so we can ask ourselves diagnostic questions. We can ask ourselves honestly and truly, do I have a love for God? When I think of God, am I filled with a desire to see his glory go out? Am I filled with a desire to see his name exalted? Or do we primarily think about our own name, our own glory, our own desires? Do we love God in that way? If so, that is evidence that God has loved us. Another diagnostic question. Do we have love for one another, our fellow believers? Are we actively working for their good? Actively thinking of ways to love our spouse. Actively thinking of ways to show greater and greater love to our children. And even those sitting in the pew next to us. Are we making those sacrifices? Are we looking to the needs of those around us? Or have we started to become a little, com- in, a little complacent with our love? Have we started to become self-centered, unfocused, unloving? John wants us to ask these hard questions tonight. He wants us to ask these hard questions so that we may know for sure that God's love dwells within us, that we start to love one another. But John continues to press this command to love one another. Look with me at verse 11. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And here John uses this word, ought, which I think is significant to his point. Uh, When he uses this language of, of ought, he is talking about something that we now owe, a debt, as it were. And this, I think, connects to what John has been saying this whole time. Remember, Christ is a propitiation for your sin. That Christ has come and he has removed your debt of sin before God. And now John is showing us what is put in its place. It is a new debt, a new ought. And this is not a debt that is burdensome. It is not a debt that uh, weighs us down, but rather this is a blessed debt. And this debt is in the form of a simple command. This new debt is love. Love one another. Do we feel this obligation of love? Do we think of love as simply something that is useful and good? And yeah, I should probably... Show some love every now and again. Or do we have a burden for love? Do we have an obligation? Do we feel that obligation of love and know that God has placed us with a debt of love? No, we cannot pay back God's goodness to us through this new debt, through this new debt of love. But John is telling us that we can and that we should respond to the love of God really by loving those around us, 
by letting God's love so fill us that we overflow to those around us. Well, next, John shows us really quite remarkably that when we are loving as God intends, we're actually revealing God to the world around us. Look with me at verse 12. John says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. As we all know, God is a spirit. He is invisible. You cannot see him, and that's why John says, no one has ever seen God. But why bring this up now? Why is John all of a sudden talking about the invisible uh, reality of God? Well, I think he's doing this. I think he's reminding us that though God himself cannot be seen, we can see the fruit of God's work. We can see the evidence of what God is doing. You could understand it a little bit with this illustration. Um, I usually tend to think that my dog is, is a pretty good dog, but every now and again my dog will decide to destroy something in my house while Lisi and I are gone at work. So we will come home and we'll see the apartment and we'll see that he has destroyed his bed, ripped it up into a million pieces, or he's knocked over the trash can and has eaten all kinds of trash uh, and made a huge mess. Now, when I see the mess that my dog has made, I don't stop and think to myself, hmm, I wonder what happened. I wonder how the trash can knocked over. Lisi, did, did you do this? Did you chew up the, the dog bed? That's not how I respond. I immediately know what happened. I know that my dog did it because that's something only my dog does. And so I see the fruit of my dog's work and I immediately attribute it to my dog. In a similar way, when the world sees true love in believers, they do not see God himself. They see him at work. They see the fruit of God at work in us. And this points them to God. Because remember... All love comes from God. He is the source. He is where it all points back to. And this is why John says, if we love one another, God abides in us. In a very remarkable way, if we are obedient to this command, if we are loving, then the world will know that God is with us. And this is because the love of God is unique. It's different. It's startling to the, belie- to the unbelief. It is something so different and so foreign to this world that it causes people to notice and to, to pay attention to it. And so we see that the command to love carries a great weight. The command to love is, is also a command to witness with our love. And that is exactly what we do when we are loving as God intends. And then very briefly and lastly, John shows us That love is perfected in us when we are loving. Here, when John says that that love is perfected in us, he means that God's purposes for love are completed. They are brought to their completion. They're brought to their conclusion. The intention of God, God's love, is completed in us when we express love for others. And this, I think, reminds us 
that God wants more for you and I than simply to save us from our sins, though that is tremendously valuable. He also wants us to love like he does. He wants us to look like him because he is our heavenly father. And in our imitation of God, he is glorified. And he will receive that glory. This is what it means for God's love to be perfected in us. Well, let me bring this sermon to an end. We've seen tonight that John, or John has showed us who God is. We've seen the tremendous uh, reality that God is love. That he is the possessor of perfect love. We've also seen that God has poured out his love on us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, though we are unlovely before him. And lastly, we've seen that we must respond to this great love and that there is only one good response, that we must imitate God. We must be like him. We must be loving. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another. Let us pray.